So um, what we've been doing with this series, as I've said, is um, looking at scriptures that help us understand that a person who is trusted in Christ, there should be change in their life. That, that'd be a good way to, to, to describe. There should be some type of change in your life. And, and we've looked at how that impacts the way we live. And, you know, so for some of you, I'm hoping that as you've sat through this series, for some of you, I'm hoping that it stirred up a healthy doubt. Because for some of you, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, and I, and I don't have anyone specific in my mind, by the way. I'm just saying in a, in a room this size and normally when it's fuller, the, just statistics. When a, when a, when a person is um, sitting in a church their whole life or year after year and they think they're a believer but there's no change in their life, for you, I hope it's stirring up a healthy doubt. Because I want that doubt to drive you to the Lord. Because if you found yourself in the last couple weeks listening to these sermons, looking at these, these scriptures and going, man, I'm, I'm not sure that I really do belong to Christ. I, I know I had an experience. I know I went forward. I know I signed a card. I know I raised a hand or whatever the case may be. And someone told me that if I did those things that I'd be saved. But if I'm really being honest, there's been no change. I had a great discussion, um, I believe it was this past week, with, with a group of people who uh, we were talking about this very thing. And, and how my story was, I, if I was looking back at my story, I'd tell you I got saved at 13. I went forward at a camp, um, you know, but then nothing really changed. And then two years later, I started reading the Bible on my own after I ended a really toxic relationship. Now, for years, I would tell you I think I was saved at 13. But now I look back at that, and as I consider the scriptures, I'm going, but there was no life in me. There's nothing changed for those next two years. And then all of a sudden, in, in my eighth grade year, I was like 14 or 15, at the end of that relationship, because I knew I needed to end that relationship, that I started reading the Bible on my own and I came alive. That's when I look back at my life and I, and I see life came into to existence. That's when, when I look back now and I say, I think that's when, when God got a hold of me. And so some of you, maybe you have similar stories. In the group I was visiting with this week, that was the case for some of them. You know, maybe you're, you're saying, yeah, I was sitting in church for years, and, and then just over time, I, I realized I had no life in me, but I came alive this one day. Or, or I remember starting to read the scriptures, and, and all of a sudden, life just was in me. And I can look back now and go, it wasn't here, it was here. And maybe that's happened to you sometime while you've, you've been in a service here. Maybe that's happened to you at a camp or while listening to something online. I don't know. But remember last week, uh, two weeks ago when I preached last week, we ended by saying it doesn't matter if you have a date. Who cares if you have a date if that date does not really represent life? See, lots of people have dates where they went forward, signed a card, prayed a prayer, but there was no life generated in them. It's more important that we assess ourselves now and say, Am I a believer now? Do, do I trust Jesus now? Because if I don't trust him now, but I have a date, my date doesn't get me into heaven. My date doesn't get me into the kingdom. My date doesn't forgive my sins. My date doesn't do any of those things that I'm thinking has been done. And so that's what this series has been about. And I think I just preached a mini sermon right there, all in the introduction. So... Here we go. Um, let's, let's look at these verses because it's just going to drive it home this morning. So the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Colossae, a church that he's never been to before. He's never seen these people. He's never met these people. But he's writing letters because he hears that this church, this group of believers, this group of Christians are being challenged in what they believe. There's people coming along and they're challenging what this church believes. And some of them might be being led astray and some of them might be shifting their hope and their trust away from the gospel that has been preached to them. And so Paul's writing this letter to encourage them to stay focused. Keep in Christ. 
keep in the gospel. And so he thanks God in the opening of the letter. He thanks God for these people and how he has heard about their faith. Okay, so even from the beginning of the letter, Paul's saying, I know that you've trusted in Christ because I've heard about the way you love people. Listen, if a person claims to be a believer in Christ, but they have no love for people, they have no love for other believers, they make statements to you like, I love Jesus, but I hate his people, that's a problem. Now, I understand Jesus' people sometimes are the problem. I understand that. But don't let that be an excuse where you stay in rest because a person who stays in that spot and has no genuine love for believers in Christ, 1 John would tell you that person's likely not a believer. And so Paul says, I, I thank God when I remember you because I hear about the way you love others. And so he's thanking God. From now he's going to get into verse 21 where he's going to remind them of what's true of them. So let's pick it up with verse 21 through 23, and uh, we're going to read through the verses, and then we'll walk right back through them. And you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds as expressed through your evil deeds. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy, without blemish, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain in the faith, established firm and firm, without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has also been preached in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become its servant. All right, so let's take a look at what Paul's saying. I'm going to break it up just in three easy ways this morning. First, we're going to look at you without Jesus. Me without Jesus. Okay, this is the reality of humanity without Jesus. Verse 21, you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds as expressed through your evil deeds. And so Paul starts and he's reminding the people he's writing to. And by application, you and I can take this ourselves. You were at once strangers or alienated, separated. There was a time where the people that Paul's writing to they did not know Christ. They were not part of, of the covenant people of God. They didn't belong to God uh, in the sense of trusting in Christ. And so Paul says, at one time you were distant from him. You were alienated. You were strangers. Right? You didn't know him. He didn't know you in, a, in this loving covenant type of relationship. There was separation, which is the plight of all of humanity from the day we're born. Ever since the fall of humanity with Adam and Eve, every person who has ever been born is born into this state, separated, strangers to God. We are, we are not born into a relationship with God. We are born separated from a relationship with God. We are not born naturally loving God. We are born with tendencies opposed to God. And Paul says, this was you. This was you before, before Christ gets a hold of you. You were at one time strangers. And then he goes even further and he says, and enemies in your minds. Now, now when he says minds, don't just think intellectual like we would separate it today. Because when Paul uses the word minds, and when the Greeks would talk about the word mind, they would often be referring to the center of who you are, your very core, your disposition. And so what he's saying is you and your very core, in your nature, who you are is an enemy of God. It's not just that you have bad and rebellious thoughts about God. That's just the manifestation of what's coming out of who you are. Every person who has been born has been born impacted by, uh, by sin in a world that has been impacted by sin. And so we are born enemies of God. 
And so he says that you're, you are enemies in your minds. And then he says, and that was expressed through your evil deeds. How do you know you're, e- you're enemies uh, uh, of God? Because your deeds, the way you live your life has been showing that. Now, some translations uh, go a little bit too far, I think, and they say you are enemies in your mind because of your deeds. But that's not really what's going on here. Paul is not saying that your deeds, the way you live your life, make you an enemy of God. No, no, it starts far before that. You see, see, Paul is saying that you are an enemy of God and therefore the way you live your life reflects that. And that's what we've been looking at this whole series is, is you'll know a tree by its fruit. And so when he says that uh, it's been expressed through your evil deeds, what that's telling us is my sin problem, your sin problem, is not something that you can just fix by cleaning up your behavior. That's not it. You can try to clean up your behavior all you want, but it will not fix the sin problem. The sin problem can only be fixed by a changed heart because only a changed heart will then lead to a changed life. Obedience done to try to earn acceptance is not scriptural. It's not biblical. Obedience as a result of acceptance by God is what the scriptures teach. And so, um, kids, if you're in the room, um, maybe, maybe you get this. Uh, kids, are you listening to me at the moment? Because I'm going to say something to you that, that I want you to think about. When you obey your parents, how many of you obey your parents? <laughs> oh, I got a maybe. That's real honest right there. He's giving me a side thumbs up. That's good. Okay. All right. So, listen, when it comes to obeying your parents, all right, listen, when it comes to obeying your parents, your parents love you regardless of whether you obey. So your obedience is not to make your parents love you. All right? You obey your parents because of your love for them. Okay, you obey your parents as a response, as, as something that, that is already true. You don't obey them and then they might love you. Now, I understand parents, step back a moment, break down analogy because that doesn't work in every home. Because every home is impacted by sin. So I understand that I'm, I'm saying that to your kids, and maybe you know someone that that's not true of their household, that they do have to earn obedience, and that's not a picture of a loving father and a loving God. But I want you guys to know that, uh, kids, that you obey your parents not so that they will love you because they already do. You obey them because they love you. And that's what Paul is saying we do with God. We don't obey God in order to please God so that he might love us and accept us. God already loves us. You know how we know that? Because he sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. That's what Paul tells us, that God shows us his love by sending Christ while we were still sinners. So that's what Paul's saying. He's saying this was, this was you apart from Jesus. You're strangers. You're separated. You're like, the, you're like the kid looking through the window at that family, wishing that you could be a part of that family, but knowing that you're not. He says, you're strangers. You're alienated. You're separate. And your enemies in your mind, your very disposition, your very core, who you are is opposed to God, and that's shown in the way you live your life. So how does a person, how does a person that's, that's, their, that's their state, how do they then go to being accepted by a holy God? And so the next breakdown we'll do is you because of Jesus. So is you apart from Jesus, now you because of Jesus. Verse 22. But now, now there's a lot of big buts in the scripture. And this is one of them. All right? This is one of those where, where Paul has just said this is the condition of humanity. It's dire. It's, it's not good. But now. 
Or in Ephesians 2, this Ephesians 2, 4, after Paul said, you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived according to the, the prince of this world. And, and he's going on and on and describing this, this ugly situation. And he says, but God who is rich in mercy. That's a big one. And that's what he does here. This was your condition. But now, this was you in the past. This was you apart from Jesus. But now, this is you because of Jesus. He goes on, he says, he has reconciled you. He's taken what's been separated and he's brought it back together. He's taken what's been broken and he's mended it. He's taken the gap that was there and he filled the gap so that the two parties, God and humanity, could be reunited. Now, the order of reconciliation is important. God, uh, Jesus does not reconcile God to humanity. He reconciles humanity to God because God didn't do anything wrong. God has never been guilty of doing anything wrong. He's never sinned. He's not unjust. He's never rebelled against himself. But we, humanity, are guilty of that. And so we are the ones who have need to be reconciled to God. And guess what? Paul says the way that that has happened is by his physical body through the death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him. So, so, but now you have been reconciled. But listen, you didn't do anything to reconcile yourself. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that any human, any person can do to reconcile themselves to God. You can't fill that gap. You can't earn your way to God. You can't be good enough to impress God, to make God pick you for his kickball team. You can't do that because you will fail every time. Because even on your best day, the slightest tainting of sin is enough to keep us strangers and aliens away from God and to be uh, enemies of God. Because God is all holy, God is all perfect, God is all righteous. There's no one greater than him. And to violate his glory is to make the supreme offense in all the universe. Only God can step in and solve that problem. And that's what Paul says, but now you have been reconciled, but it was through Christ's death. You see, Jesus' death was necessary in order to reconcile people to God because sinful people uh, uh, required death for their sins. And because death was required for their sins, Jesus steps in, and instead of letting that death and that judgment come to people that, that were unworthy of God's grace and God's love, Jesus steps in and says, I'm going to do that for them. And so he stands in the place of guilty people, of guilty sinners, re rebels against God. And through his death on the cross, he reconciles people. Forgiveness of sins is now available through Christ. The, the, the judgment of God was poured on Christ. So now that's not going to be poured on those who trust in Christ. The, the, the sacrifice was paid. This was all done through the body, through the death of Jesus. This was Jesus stepping in the place of guilty people, even though he was innocent. That's how people get reconciled. That's you because of Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus. This is not true of all of people. God did not reconcile all of humanity. No, he, he has made that possible through Christ, and those who trust in Christ will be reconciled. That's, that's the limiting factor. That those who trust in Christ, you cannot have any other way because Jesus would then later, he would say uh, previously in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And so Paul is saying, you, because of Jesus, you've been reconciled. That gap has been closed. You're no longer an enemy. You're no longer hostile in mind. But look what he says. So he's, he's talking about what you've been saved from. But then he goes on and he doesn't stop there because so many of us stop there and we go, I'm saved from my sins. I'm forgiven of my sins. I get to be in heaven. But there's so much more. We're not just saved from something. We're saved for something. And, and not, the, not necessarily the reason. I'm talking about the goal. Do you see what it says there? He, he, he reconciled us through his death in order to present. Some translations say this one just says to present, but it's telling you the purpose of you being reconciled is not simply that you would know God, but more so it goes beyond that so that Christ would be able to present you as holy without blemish and blameless before God the Father. And that's a picture of grace because he takes people who are enemies, who are hostile in, in mind and, and rebelling against God in the way they live, and he takes them through his death and he's going to make them holy. How does, a, how does a holy God accept people who are sinful? Because the Savior, Christ, makes them holy. And, and, and he takes the, the sin and, and he, he cleanses them so that they are without blemish. And then, and then he's going to present you before the Father and nobody, not even Satan himself, can point a finger at you and say, no, 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 nope, that sin's un, unpaid for. That, that sin right there. Because every time the enemy is pointing the finger at you, the Savior is saying, no, he's mine. No, she's mine. No, I died for that one. I've, I've, I've covered that one. Every sin, past, present, and future. If you've trusted in Christ, you are secure in Christ. He will keep you because he's invested in you. And he has not just saved you so that you would be, be, be in heaven. He has saved you for far more than that so that he would then be able to clean you up because you don't get clean before you come to Christ. Amen? You cannot take a bath before you come to Christ, right? He gives you that bath. You, you taking your bath before, the, before you come to Christ would be doing nothing. All it would be doing, it'd be like a middle school locker room, a boy's middle school locker room, covering up a bunch of stink with that perfume or that cologne or whatever it is, their Axe body spray, you know, or whatever. You can smell the stench, but there's a little bit of sweetness to it, and you're going, this is just horrible. It's just horrible, right? Sorry for that image. That was not planned. Stick to the script. All right. All right. So that's what Christ has saved us for, that he is working in process you so that what he's begun in you, he will complete in you. You don't just get saved and sit back. No, no, you were saved for something, that you would be made holy, that you would be without blemish. And that is a process that God is working through Christ by the power of his spirit in your life day after day after day. And we've looked at verses that have shown that. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 is, is a great example of that. Everything that comes into your life Everything, if you're a believer in Christ, is being used to ultimately conform you to the image of Christ as you move toward that goal of meeting Christ one day when he returns. And that day, he will be able to say, I've cleaned them. They didn't do their own bath. I scrubbed them. And I got every spot. I got every wrinkle. I got every blemish. And he's going to present to his father his bride. And he's going to say, look, Father, isn't she beautiful? Isn't she radiant? She's mine. That's what you've been saved for. And so Paul, you apart from Jesus, you because of Jesus. And then lastly, he's going to say, so keep believing in Jesus. Keep believing in Jesus. Because verse 23 is a little difficult. 
So you, he, he's gonna, you've been reconciled. He's going to present you holy if indeed you remain in the faith, established and firm, without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has also been preached in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become its servant. Paul is not saying, and I've hit this multiple times in the last four sermons on, the, on this series, Paul is not saying, hey, you're going to be reconciled if you continue to believe, but there might be a chance that if you stop believing, you're unreconciled. That's not what he's saying. There's nowhere in the scriptures where you're going to find a spot where it talks about a person who's been reconciled to God, a person who's been given eternal life, that that eternal life is then taken away or that eternal life is then given up. How cheap is that if we are to say that, God, I received this gift that I had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with. Christ has secured all of it for me. It was initiated by God the Father. It was taken care of through Christ the Son and it has been applied through the Spirit. And then I say, but I'm going to hand it back to you. Or I, I'm, I, I'm going to do something that is greater than the sacrifice that Christ paid for, and therefore I'm going to be, be lost. There's, there's nowhere in the scriptures that I think you're going to find that. Now, admittedly, there are verses that are hard. And, and, and I think that if you continue to dig in them, like we did a couple weeks ago with Hebrews 6, one of the hardest ones is that you're going to find the context helps us to understand that it's not about losing your salvation. It's not about being able to walk away from the sovereign hand of God. But instead, it's a warning to continue believing because, listen, there are some who have a type of belief that does not lead to salvation. They have a type of faith that has not saved them because it's a type of belief, the type of faith that is surface and superficial only. And when things get tough, it's revealed that it was not genuine. It was not God-wrought faith. It was human mustard faith. And when things get hard, hope shifts. And you realize, as we've seen over the last several weeks, you realize that that person was likely never a believer to begin with. And so Paul, writing to a group of people that he's never met before, he's saying, this is true of you. I've heard about this. But listen, just like me, if I'm in a counseling session and I don't really know you, and you tell me you're a believer, but I got maybe some doubts, or, or maybe I just really don't know enough about you to, to, to get, I don't want to ever give you a false assurance, and I won't. And, and so I might say to you a lot of times, if, if. And then I've had some people get offended, and they say, I am. And I say, great. Well, if you are, you know why I'm saying if you are? Because I don't know, and it's not for me to necessarily know for certain, but if you have trusted in Christ, then this is true of you. Oh, I have done that. Great. Well, if you have, then you should be left. Well, I have done that. Great. Well, if you have, and I'm always going to come back to the if, 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 because it's only true if it's genuine. And I'm not in a position of authority to be able to make that true for you. I cannot make you saved just by giving you some kind of assurance. I can't say to you because you prayed a prayer, because you signed a card, because you raised a hand, you are, you are a believer. Because, because I don't know if in the midst of that, what you were expressing was genuine faith or if you just got caught up in a moment. I don't know that. So I'm going to always lead with if if I don't know you. And Paul has never met these people. And so I, I think part of what he's saying is, look, you've been reconciled and you're going to be presented holy if you continue to believe. Why? Because the only sure way to know if you're a genuine believer is that you're going to still be believing when Christ returns or when you die. Whatever comes first. That's the only sure way that the scripture gives us to know this is how you know. Now, you can go back and say, I believed in Christ on this day. I see evidences of my fruit. Absolutely. But you know what the hard and fast way to know is? Am I still a believer when Christ returns? Am I still trusting in him when I die?
That's how I know. Because, because throughout the time, between the time maybe I, I've trusted in him and the time he returns, hey, I, I have no clue what's going to happen. And, and life may challenge me. And challenges may come my way and trials may confront me. And one of those might be too hard and one of those might turn me away. And I'm saying, you know what? I don't want to be a part of this. And look, the people that some of, some of us think are the most grounded, the most faithful, might surprise you one day and completely walk away. And you're going to know, wow, we all, we all thought even they thought that person was genuine. And look, there's always a possibility that a genuine believer could get caught up in some sin for a season of life and, and live in unrepentant sin. Absolutely, there's always that possibility. But you know what the other possibility is? You didn't really believe to begin with. And that's evidence in the fact that you don't continue to believe. And so Paul says, if indeed you remain in the faith. Now, how do you remain in the faith? Positively, you're established and firm. In other words, I'm going to rest on the gospel. I'm established on the gospel. My hope is found in Christ and nothing else. I'm not mixing anything in. There's no karma mixed in with Christ. There's no Hinduism, no Buddhism. I'm not taking any kind of other spirituality and mixing that in with Christ and, and, and taking my, my, my favorite pieces of each. Nope, it's all Christ or nothing. I'm established in him. I understand there's no way to the Father except through him. And that's true not only for me, but for everyone in all of history. There's no way through the Father except through Christ. I'm established. I'm firm. And daily, I'm trusting that. Daily. And it's evidenced in the way I'm living my life. I'm not claiming that, but then basing my hope on my job. I'm not claiming that and then basing my hope on my health. I'm not claiming that and basing my hope on my marriage or whatever relationship that it is I'm pursuing. I am resting, resting securely in Christ. My identity is rooted in him. He, he tells me who I am when I'm created as a new creature, and I rest in that. I don't listen to what other people say about who I am. I am. I'm not defined by what other people say as who I am. I am defined by who Christ says I am when he secured me and he purchased me and he showed me his love that has rested on me from all eternity. I'm established and I'm firm. That's the positive way you remain in the faith. What's the negative way? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shifting away from believing in the gospel into something else that sounds good at the moment. I'm not, I'm not turning one way or the other. I'm staying focused and held fast on the gospel. So keep believing Jesus. And so as we wrap up this series and as we, we wrap up this morning, I, I went real light this morning. I, I think it was light because I think we've hit it pretty hard the last several weeks as we've gone through this. And, and I feel like at times I really hammered it. And my intent was, was never to hammer, to, to make you walk away feeling guilty. Although if that's a God-given guilt, absolutely, I'm comfortable with that. Like I said, there's some of you who, as you listen to this, if, if, if you don't belong to Christ, you should be feeling some, some kind of guilt, some kind of conviction of the Spirit. You should be feeling some kind of doubt. Do I belong to God? I mean, I come, I give, maybe even I serve. But I don't see any life in me. I have no growing desire for God. My life, if people were honest, I'm trying to hide my life from people so that they don't see me. Right? And, and, and some of you, if that's the case, you need to have that doubt because that doubt is what's going to lead you to Christ. And I hope that's what's happening for some of you. For others of you, I hope it's been an encouragement for you because that's for the believer in Christ. These kind of verses are an encouragement to you because we read, if indeed you continue, and some people go, I'm not sure I'm continuing, but for the believer who is established and remaining focused on the gospel, they should say, I'm remaining. 
I'm still believing. I still believe Christ. I still trust him. And daily I'm trusting that. And we should look at that and say, that's an encouragement that God is at work in my life. If you're struggling with sin and, and you have a battle being waged in your heart, that's an encouragement that God is at work in your life. If you're battling with sin and there's no, there, there, uh, if you're struggling with sin and there's no battle, is there life? Is there spirit there? Because where the spirit is, is, is indwelling someone and sin is, is threatening that person, those two will be at odds. And so if you're battling and you hate the sin that you're dealing with and you're trying to put it to death, I think that might be evidence that God is at work in your life. But if you are calling sin something beautiful, something good, something right or you're justifying it or excusing yourself and finding ways around the scriptures that confront you see category one healthy doubt that's where you need to be this morning and and for the believer then the the assurance that should come from this is as i see evidence of the spirit at work in my life i can have a confidence before god because i rest on christ and I see evidence of his work in my life. Listen, Paul is not saying at all that the way you live your life earns salvation. He's saying the way you live your life shows salvation. And some of you, maybe you don't have assurance this morning. Maybe you've trusted in Christ, but you've been dealing with assurance. And there's two things I want to just throw out to you as we wrap this up. The first one is this. You're probably way too focused on yourself. You're probably way too focused on your own sin. Because if you're constantly focused on all the areas that you're failing, all the areas you're constantly failing, and you're not focused on the Savior who has died for each one of those, you are going to not have assurance. Because all you're looking at is failure, failure, failure. Sin, sin, sin. But when your eyes are lifted up and you see Christ died for all of that, when my mind is set on things above and I'm not so focused on what I'm doing, but what Christ is doing in me, yeah, there's sin in my life. But if I get too consumed with that and not consumed with Christ, I'm going to lack that assurance. The other thing is this. Perhaps maybe you're struggling with assurance because in some sin-twisted way, and you may not even know this, you have started to live your life after being saved by Christ, trying to prove your worthiness to be saved. You would clearly say, I did not deserve what God has given me through Christ. I'm unworthy. But now you're living your life trying somehow to convince God or yourself that you were indeed worthy. And you will never be worthy to have received what God gives us in Christ. Never will you be worthy to receive that. Only because God has extended his grace and because he has acted on our behalf and Christ has stood in our place and rose from the dead, only that is where my hope rests. I will never be able to prove that I was worthy because I never was. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of grace. Keep believing in Jesus. So let's just take a moment as we wrap this up and just ask God, what do you have for me this morning? What is it that you're saying that has my name on it this morning?
I'm in awe of the grace that you extend to us. I'm in awe of the way that you love us so freely and yet so undeservedly. And God, I long for, for all of us to know that love and to know the freedom that, that comes with knowing Christ and being in Christ. And yet, I know so many who are entrapped and enslaved, but they believe a lie. They believe that they, they have been set free. And yet, in that belief that they've been set free, they're living as prisoners, trying to earn acceptance, trying to prove worthiness. God, I pray that you would set them free this morning. For those who have been enslaved to sin and, and, and have not known Christ, that you would open their eyes and the light of the gospel would illuminate the darkness, that they would see the beauty of God and, and the, the love that has been shown to us through Christ coming and dying in the place of sinners so that we would not have to incur the judgment that was justly ours, but instead was placed on Christ. I pray, God, for those who don't have the life that, that Christ himself raised to when he rose from the dead and now gives to people as we believe in him. God, I, I pray that you would let them be aware of that lack of life and see how pale the life they're living is in comparison to the life you give. And for those, God, who belong to you but have, have, have struggled with sin and that sin is starting to choke out their confidence before you, God, that confidence is never based on us. It's always been based on being able to stand before the throne of grace with confidence because of Christ, the one who has gone before us. And so, God, I pray that you'd lift their eyes this morning, that they would stop focusing on themselves and the sin and the failure, but instead see the victory of the Savior and the work that he is doing as he is beginning and completing that work that he has begun in us. Stir up our heart, God. Make us aware of our lives, our minds, our hearts, the way we live, that we might be people who live for your glory and might find ourselves on the day of Christ as being faithful and being ready. And God, as we depart from here, let us be people whose lives are so marked by that that it is evident not for our glory, and we don't want to do things for our glory, but for your glory. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you next week.